Well, today we begin a new book of Scripture. We're going to be journeying through the Old Testament book of Nehemiah together for this season through the fall. And we just love, love, love going through books of the Bible together. Uh, What it does is it keeps me off of my soapboxes and forces me to uh, preach whatever's next in succession. You didn't think preachers had soapboxes, did you? Of course they do. And uh, so now the the book of Nehemiah is uh, one of the historical books of the the, the scriptures of the Old Testament. The first five books are the Pentateuch. Pentateuch meaning five, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then the next books are the historical books, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First Second Chronicles, Ezra, and then Nehemiah. And what we have in these historical books are we have names and we have dates, kings and kingdoms. It's all laid out there. It's historically verifiable. This isn't just kind of made up stories. This is historically verifiable. And one of the, the dangers of the historical books of Scripture is that since the name of Jesus is not written blatantly in the Scripture here in the historical books, then we just kind of, we don't see Jesus in the narrative. And we need to see Jesus in the narrative. We need to know that all of Scripture, the whole of Scripture, really comes back to Jesus. In Luke chapter 24, verse 27, it says, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And so, Jesus is central, as it says here, in all the scriptures. Jesus is central in all of the scriptures, including Nehemiah. And so we're going to see Jesus in Nehemiah. If you haven't turned there already, you can go ahead and turn to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is about a city. It's not about just any city, though. It's about Jerusalem, which is God's city, the city of God. And here's how we're going to see Jesus in the book of Nehemiah. Today, in chapter 1, we're going to see Nehemiah weep over the city of Jerusalem, which is a foreshadowing of Jesus in Luke chapter 19, verse 42, weeping over the city of Jerusalem as he walks in for Holy Week. And so we see in that, that passage, it says that he draws near to the city and he weeps over it. He weeps over it. And so the call today is for us to adopt Jesus's heart for the city, for our city, for Boston. Let me ask you, have you ever cried for Boston, for your hometown? My little daughter, Nora, she's two years old. After two wild boys, we finally got our girl, and she's my baby girl. She's our little angel. But man, that girl knows how to work it. She knows how to work it. She is, she's a drama queen, and she's got this new thing that she does where when she wants a little attention from mom or dad and we're nowhere to be found, we've caught her doing this. She'll, she'll bury her face into her hands and she'll fake cry. <laughs> and then she'll kind of look around if we're looking. <laughs> and she'll kind of look around a little bit. Listen, we need, to, we need to weep for our city. I'm asking God to help us to be able to weep for our city, but authentically the real deal kind of weep for our city where our heart really breaks for the city, that it's genuine brokenness, not Christians going through the motions like, oh, I love my city because I'm supposed to. And I love my city and I care for my city and I've proverbially cried for my city. No, I want to be broken for the city. I want myself to be broken for this city. Remember when Becky and I, my wife and I, started receiving just a real burden for Boston. We would drive from Worcester about an hour outside of the city where we lived. I built a house there, and we would drive in like any tourist. 
into to Boston and we'd go, come here for games or we'd come here, uh, you know, to watch a concert or we'd come here, you know, for a, a really swanky date night or something. I remember around age 25, something was happening. Every time I'd go into the city and I'd leave the city, my heart would just kind of beat out of my chest. And I remember explaining it to my wife and thinking, I don't, I don't know what's going on, but something is, you know, my heart is kind of racing when I'm in the city. It just feels really strange. And then I remember kind of in that season reading Acts chapter 17, verse 16, a, a passage of scripture I've read many times before with Paul in Athens. But this time it just really, really hit me. I read it and it said that when Paul was in Athens, it says his spirit was provoked within him at the city full of idols. And it clicked. That's what's happening in my heart. Going to Boston to be a leech, you know, and suck life out of the city and, and go to games or concerts or shows. But God had been provoking my heart. Let's do something about this city that is full of idols, idolizing education, idolizing financial success, career success, idolizing institution of the church, but not the center, Jesus, of the church itself. And so we moved into Boston to start a church. But here's what happens for me and can happen for you. We move in and we settle in and then we just kind of get used to it. It just kind of becomes the norm. And I'm asking God to break our heart for the city. I'm asking God to break my heart again for the city as we see Jeremiah's heart break for Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was to be the city of God. As you read through the narrative of, of Scripture, God had brought his people into the promised land, and at the heart of the promised land is Jerusalem. God's people would reside in the city. They would uh, worship at this temple that they would erect in this city. It would be a place where they, are, it's just known, we come here, we worship the Lord. It's a place where they're going to live extraordinary lives here, focused on God. Jesus, God, is the focus center them. And as we read through the scriptures time and time and time again, it speaks to Jerusalem. It is this model city for us. Over and over and over again, it's mentioned thousand plus times. Or Mount Zion, Zion, Jerusalem. It's sung about throughout the Psalms. It's, it's frequented by God's people as a place for a, a religious pilgrimage. It was the center of, of the, the faith and it was really to be the model city for us, displaying to the world, what it would look like if God's people could live together and God would be the focus center. He would be the, the everything for this city. Their culture would be unique so that they would worship different. They would do marriage and sex and family differently. That their, their careers would be different. They would be unique because God would be at the center of everything. And so as we read through the scriptures... We're going to see, like Jerusalem, cities kind of have this special place in the heart of God. You look at the beginning of your Bible, the first pages of, of Scripture, we have a garden. It's a rural setting. And God says what? He says, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. I want you to fill it up. I want you to fill it up. So we get to the last pages of the Bible, the last couple of chapters of the book of Revelation. And what do we have? We have a city. We have a holy city, Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven for God's people. The vision has been accomplished from the first page of Scripture to the last page of Scripture. It has been accomplished with God's intervention because we kind of mess it up a little bit. Fortunately, Revelation chapter 21 verse 5 will tell us, Jesus tells us, Behold, 
I'm making all things new. So you didn't really accomplish the mission all that well, but I'm making all things new. And the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem's coming, and it will be renewed city living for us. We're going to enter this holy city. Jesus is at the focus center. There is no sun, S-U-N, because the S-O-N lights up the city is what the scriptures will tell us. There's going to be hope because we're focus centered on Jesus. And so we want to be about that. That's why we pray on earth as it is in heaven. We're going to pray for the renewal of the city here just as we read is coming. We're preparing ourselves for that. And our city is Boston, so we want to be about that business here in Boston. God's heart is for the city. We saw last week in Acts chapter 16, as we walked through the birth of the church of Philippi, we saw the strategic importance of the city, of urban centers, really strategically important for the mission of God because cities are cultural hubs. Culture emanates out of the city. And so if we want to reach a region like the burden of our heart to reach New England, we begin with Boston. It's a very strategic place. We said last week Boston is home to 80-plus colleges just inside of 128. Boston's home to some major, major hospitals. Medical research is in Boston. Technological ingenuity in Boston. Politics emanates out of Boston. Boston is one of the most diverse places in the world. 8% of our college students, we have a lot of college students. You compare this summer to where we're at today. We went from ghost town to it's popping here. We love our students. They bring life. 8% of those students are international students. The world has come to Boston. The city is of strategic importance, the global mission of Jesus. And though Boston's really not one of the larger cities of the world, it's not this massive city. It is when you compare it to, you know, rural areas, but it's not all that massive. But it is one of the most influential, if not, in my estimation, the most influential city in the world based on the fact crazy percentage of world leaders that will study in Boston at some point in their life at Harvard and other schools based on medical research that will come out of our hospitals. When my uh, little sister, she's a few years younger than me, when she was four years old, she fell out of a two-story window, head first on the concrete, broke both of her arms, fractured her skull, brain bruised, brain swelling. Guess where they flew her from Atlanta, Georgia? To Boston. To Boston, the Children's Hospital, to be cared for and so they could study her, 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 her brain a little bit. Technological influ- uh, uh, ingenuity coming out of Boston, somewhere like MIT, for example. I believe this is one of the most influential cities in the world. To quote Jonathan Winthrop, who, who quotes Jesus, he says of the Massachusetts Bay Colony that this shall be as a city on a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us, is what he said. We love our city. We love this city. We care for this city. And we know that God has a heart for the city, that it is a strategic place for the spread of the gospel globally. And we want to be a church for Boston, not against Boston, for Boston. We have tremendous opportunity to be like Jerusalem, to build up a community of faith, a city on a hill that will emanate light and hope and grace and truth in the city on a hill where people are drawn to it for refuge and for rescue when they're lost. They can see it in the distance. That's what God wants us to be. Now, 
I want to be very careful to say this. God loves every place on the map. Every place on the map. He loves suburbia. He loves the, the towns. He loves the rural, remotest villages. If there are people there, God's heart is there, and God wants there to be healthy, vibrant, Jesus-centered faith communities there. But there is strategic importance to the city. And so what we need to do with Nehemiah and with Jerusalem is find the correlation for us and for our faith community, Charles River Church here in the city. So literally, the book of Nehemiah is about the rebuilding of walls, the walls of the ransacked city of Jerusalem. And so the, the book of Nehemiah is most commonly used for churches when they're about to enter into a capital campaign. And so they'll pull out the thermometer, you know, and start to raise money. They'll pull out the book of Nehemiah, and they'll start to walk through it. We need to see the correlation between restoring Jerusalem and restoring the church to a thriving, impactful faith community here in Boston for the good of Boston and for beyond. That's what we're doing. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. That was my intro. Hold on. Verse 1, let's read it. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital. Stop there. So, we're introduced to this guy, Nehemiah. We don't know too much about Nehemiah, except the name of his father here is Hakaliah. And we learn that he is living in Susa, which is the capital city of Persia. The Persian Empire was the great world empire for this day. In 586 BC, Babylon besieged Jerusalem, destroyed the walls. It was, it was bad. Fifty years later, in 539 B.C., the Persians under Cyrus the Great then conquer Babylon. They kind of absorb Babylon's empire. And Nehemiah, a Jewish man here, is now living in the capital city of Persia in Susa. He tells us that it's the month of Kislev, which is about November or December. And he tells us that it's the 20th year. So that would be the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes. And that would be about 445 BC. This is historically verifiable. It's not just in the Bible. It's in the history books. Next week, we're going to learn a little bit about what he's doing in Susa, what his job was a little bit. But I'll say this. He was no pastor. He was no priest. He was no religious professional. He wasn't in the system. He's just a man working a job, a good job. He loves his Lord, and he loves his faith community. That's Nehemiah. We'll see next week he's working specifically for the king of Persia. Sounds like God's kind of lining things up here. You know, God providentially lines things up. You, you don't just kind of happen to walk into the doors of this church today. You didn't just so happen to get transferred to Boston or become a student in Boston or be born and raised in Boston and have an understanding of this city. God is providentially lining things up for us even today. Now, most of the book is firsthand account. Nehemiah may be writing journal entries. And so what we learn from firsthand account, we've kind of got some facts about him, but we start to learn as we just read, we learn through his story that, that he's a man of God. We learn about his character. We learn about his faith, and we just listen to him tell his story. Let's read on a little bit, verses 2 and 3. Then Hannah and I, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, 
who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. So we learn that there's one other family member that we know about. One more fact. We know that one of his brothers' name is Hanani. And Hanani comes from Judah to see Nehemiah in Susa with some other people. And Nehemiah starts to talk to these guys, and he begins to ask them about some updates. Give me some updates about my people, my Jewish family. Tell me about what's happened. There's, we know about the Babylonian attack. Tell me what's happened. Some of the people had been carried into exile. And since then, Persia had now become the, the, the major world power. And so they have given some of the people the opportunity to return back. So some are in Jerusalem. They're living in this broken down, beat up kind of city. And it tells us specifically that people are, it's, it's awful. The wall of Jericho is broken down. The gates have been destroyed by fire. Inside of, uh, in, in kind of in that culture, in that day, they would build cities inside of gates. So the city would be fortified inside of a gate and then inside of walls and then built into the walls would be these wooden gates. And we catch here that the gates have been burned by fire. The, the, the walls have been taken down and so the city would have been under threat it was, it was bad. Because in those days, if uh, enemy attack was looming, they would shut the gates. The soldiers would guard the gates. They would guard the walls. But the wall has been broken down. The gates are destroyed by fire. It means vulnerable to attack. It's not looking good militarily. Enemies could just walk right in and continue over and over and over again to ransack Jerusalem. I've heard it been compared to modern-day uh, New Orleans, post-Katrina, what the city was like there. City of God's just devastated physically emotionally socially it's just unsafe it's not a place to be most people split and as we study nehemiah follow god's people through this book here's what we need to do we need to put ourselves in their shoes we need to enter in our faith community our church in their shoes imagine with me you move away from boston for a season you have intentions of coming back. That's your plan, right? I'm not letting anybody move away again. We had to say goodbye at the end of the summer to like eight people. It was brutal. That's just the nature of the transient city. But imagine you move away and you're coming back. And some people from the church go out to visit you. Say Chicago. Say San Diego. I don't know. Dallas. Wherever. And they come out to, to visit you. And they give you the report. You start to say, tell me about, tell me about the church. What's going on with my, my church family? How are they doing? And they say, Man, it's bad. It's really, really bad. They were kicked out of the facility. They were kicked out of the, the offices that they've been working out of. State actually came down on churches in Massachusetts. People have been scattered. They can't worship anymore. And if they try, it's unsafe for them. The kids that we were ministering to in the apartment complexes, they're gone. The mentorship relationships over, discipleship relationships over. The younger families that we've been pouring into, investing they're, they're a mess. Rosendale Village, the life that was breathed into that city, no more. No more movies in the park. No more farmer's markets. The, the shops are boarded up like back in the 80s. It's, it's, it's not good. Everybody's faith is just gone. Discipleship's not happening anymore. The church doesn't meet together like a family. Just imagine. You'd be heartbroken, right? Just heartbroken. 
all the ground that we gained, it's gone. I mean, even if, like with Persia, Persia, even if we were given permission to return and, and to worship again, it kind of kills the momentum, right? People are scattered throughout the region. Families kind of disperse a little bit. Had the, the wind knocked out of us. All the ground that we gained, no. Just start over for real. Be terrible. Be terrible. So verse 4, here's what Nehemiah says. It says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You skip ahead to chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. You see that he's still mourning. It tells us there that it's the month of Nisan, three to four months later. So Nehemiah hears this news, the condition of the city, physically, spiritually, three to four months. The guy weeps and the guy prays. He's completely broken about the condition of his faith community. He's totally devastated. So much so that in chapter two, his boss visibly sees, you're a mess, man. You ever been a mess, but you got to pull it together for work? He couldn't even pull it together. He is a mess. Now, I want to trace the dates a little bit more just to give you some real perspective of what's going on here. What year the Babylonians destroy the wall and the gates? 586. You might want to write this down to see this. 586, Babylon destroyed it. What year is it where Nehemiah gets this news? 20 years into the, the reign of Artaxerxes? 445 B.C. That's 141 years later. Now, I know they didn't have internet, but that's kind of a long time later. This would be like me showing up to church today and being all excited and be like, guys, I got some really exciting news. I just have to tell you, this is so exciting. Ulysses S. Grant was elected president, 18th president. And you'd be like, I know. Like, no, 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 we're going to throw a party. It's going to be exciting. Like, we're not throwing a party. You're crazy. We're over it, right? 141 years later. Seems like Nehemiah's meltdown is ah, a little over the top, yeah? A little over the top. And some people kind of, they'll read that and try to explain it away a little bit. And they'll say, well, maybe something else happened that's just not written there in the scriptures. Like maybe the walls were already rebuilt or were being rebuilt and then something happened. The plan was thwarted. Here's what the Bible does. The Bible gives us what we need to know. A lot of people say, well, why doesn't the Bible tell me this or this or this? The Bible gives you what you need to know to believe. If we needed to know that, it would have told us that. We don't have that news. It doesn't say that there's any kind of new update, new news about the condition. It says that he received the same news about what happened 141 years ago. It's just the same old havoc that's been in the city that he was already aware of. In fact, he was born into this news. Now, as I've been studying and kind of praying through this, wanting to get this right, Here's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing that it's the same havoc. It's a different heart. It's the same havoc that he already knew about in the city, the same condition. But God has given Nehemiah a different heart. Different heart. Different understanding about his city. He now has the heart of Jesus for Jerusalem. And he just, this time, the news comes at him and he just 
loses it. He starts to, to weep over Jerusalem, much like Jesus would do 478 years later. You have this kind of heart for our city, for our faith family here? I'm imagining Tuesday morning, Monday's my off day, Tuesday morning going into work, driving up over Metropolitan Hill, down Washington Street, and just before taking a right to the office, seeing downtown skyline and just losing it. Like Nehemiah. Like Jesus. Or, do we just get accustomed to it? Yeah, that's Boston for you. We just kind of get cold to it. Do we just kind of try to explain away the tears? Like, oh no, Nehemiah's crying. Something, something. Come on, Nehemiah. You ever had somebody try to explain away your tears? You're broken. You're really genuinely broken over something. Like you see the urban poor, and it really breaks your heart. And people say, well, you know, they kind of got themselves into the situation. They drank themselves there, and they abused things. You ever had somebody try to explain away your tears? They need Jesus. Tears are justifiable. You ever had somebody try to explain away your tears over orphans in other countries, in our own country? And you're upset, and they say, well, no, no, there's people out there that have more space in their house. They can take care of them. You ever had somebody try to explain away your tears for the brokenness of our city? Come on now. Don't be too zealous. You're a little over the top, you know? Man, uh, like I said, this past weekend was really cool. saw 150 or so student leaders stand up and say, we're going to scatter throughout New England. We're going to take this place by storm. They were fired up. I'm telling you, they were fired up. It's exciting. But every now and again, after doing these kind of things, speaking at youth events and college events and things, every now and again I get an email or a Facebook message, and it'll say something like, so Josh, I went home. I was ready to live for Christ. My parents thought I was a little too zealous, a little, a little too radical. The parents kind of pour cold water on hot coals, you know? Because, you know, us adults, we're, we're too poised, you know? We're too sophisticated to be broken. Let's be careful to have the heart of God. Psalm 51, verse 7. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Sometimes we despise it, but he will not. He won't despise it. That's why the Bible exalts, lifts up childlike faith. Say anything about an adult-like faith because we're too smart, we're too sophisticated, we got our act together, we can't be broken. That's also why I believe as you trace history and all the moves of God that I've studied, two things in common. Young believers and prayer. Because they're still stupid enough to think that God could do something amazing. And they pray for it. I've heard it said, young, passionate Christians are the kindling wood set ablaze old logs. Isn't that true? You ever seen that before in your own life? You're young, you get excited about the Lord, you come out, you fire other adults up. The church is as invigorated in the life of college students and high school students and middle school students and children who want to live for Jesus. Man, I love that. Like Nicholas von Zinzendorf, 1710, Halle, Germany, 10-year-old boy had this 
deep love for Jesus, deep passion for the gospel of Jesus. So he called five of his buddies together and he said, we got to pray. And they called themselves the order of the grain of mustard seed. So Harry Potter-esque, you know. And they prayed. They prayed, one, for Jesus to move. They prayed, two, for Christians to experience real meaningful community, fellowship. Three, they prayed for the persecuted Christians around the world. And four, they prayed for the gospel to go overseas all over the globe. Today, 10-year-olds are praying that they could beat their high score on Angry Birds. You know what I mean? (laughs) This guy's praying for some crazy stuff, 10 years old. Nicholas's family, they were wealthy. They were, they were noble. They intended for him to be a politician, for him to be a diplomat. God had some different plans for Nicholas. He did that for a little while. But then he buys this massive estate from his grandma. And rather than moving into the estate and living large in this estate, you know what he does? He turns the estate into a Christian community for persecuted Christian refugees, the Moravians. doesn't live large there. He names the place Hernu, which means the Lord's Watch. This place, for him, by age 25, had 90 Moravians living in this new little village that would turn into a city, Hernu. By age 26, one year later, 90 turned into 300. This thing was blowing up. He so cared for these people. He said, okay, maybe now it's time for me to move in, be among the people. And he went door to door and he counseled the people. 1731, he goes on this trip to Copenhagen. He meets this man named Anthony Ulrich, who's a new Christian convert from the West Indies. And Anthony said, you've got to bring the gospel, the message of Jesus, back to the black slaves in West Indies. You've got to do it. My brother and my sister are there. Please bring the gospel to them. And so, Nicholas said, man, this is what I've been praying for since I was 10 years old, for the gospel to go overseas. And God has answered my prayer for Christians to experience deep, rich, meaningful community. So he rushes back to Hernut. He finds two men who say, we're going to go to the West Indies and we're going to bring the gospel there. And his vision was fulfilled. And these guys were the first Protestant missionaries of the modern era. Within two decades, Hernut, the Moravians, sent out missionaries to Greenland, to Lapland, to Georgia, to Suriname, to Africa's uh, Guinea Coast, South Africa, Amsterdam's Jewish Quarter, Algeria, Native North Americans, Romania, and Constantinople. All this birthed out of 10-year-old boys saying, we're going to pray. We're going to shut the iPad. We're going to turn off the video game system. We're going to pray. We're going to pray. And Hernut still stands today. See what Nicholas did? So we're going to pray. He builds a faith community that would impact a city and a region and the world. He was very passionate about Christians living their lives in close-knit community, that we would be a city on a hill that emanates light globally. Nicholas is quoted to say that there can be no Christianity without community. It's not Christianity unless you're living it out with other people because Jesus declared, I will build my church, my assembly. So this is what we're trying to do through the book of Nehemiah. That like Nehemiah, we would see the condition of our city and then flowing out of seeing that, that we would be broken 
for our city. And we would pray and we would pursue spiritual awakening in our city. Let me give you some statistics about Boston and about New England. Check out this map. I want to put this up on the screen for you. I've shown this little graphic all over the U.S., but I realized last night I haven't shown it to you. So I want to show it to you and don't be so blue. Bad joke, isn't it? There you go. The blue section there is New England. And these statistics, they, they represent the percentage of evangelical church attendees. You'll see there in New England, 1% to 4% attend an evangelical church. And that can go up or down depending on how you kind of spend the statistics and how you run your stats. Nonetheless, that's our region there, the most unreached region of our country. With our city at the core. With our region within the city, the parkway where Bostonians tend to settle. Go downtown, they're transient. They're here, they're gone. I believe that this region, the parkway of Boston, is one of the most strategic regions in the world. Believe it. This region of our country, New England, birthed the Great Awakening. Jonathan Edwards. That's where my wife was born, Northampton, Mass. We go out there, park it at a coffee shop, and just kind of soak in the history. I don't get any work done. I just kind of sit and look, and people watch, pray. The Haystack Prayer Movement, Williamstown, Massachusetts, the northwest corner, Massachusetts. Flowing out of that, America's first formalized missionary would be sent, Adoniram Judson, out of Salem, Massachusetts, again, over to India. The global phenomena of college missions, which is just taking the world by storm, out of Mount Hermon, Massachusetts. Mount Hermon, Massachusetts, I have this picture on my computer of a hundred people, a hundred. It's called the Mount Hermon 100. These college students said, we are committing to go overseas and to bring the college or the gospel, all over the world. And college missions was born. Right here, all of that right here in Massachusetts. Today, most of the churches that have been touched by the Great Awakening are destroyed, spiritually speaking. Void of gospel proclamation. Today, we can drive around our city and we can see countless gorgeous church buildings turned into condos. This building, once a church... Back in, I believe it was 71, closed their doors, the school bought it. After 40 years of worship, we could say, no, we're bringing it back to, to worship the Lord again after 40 years of, of lacking worship. I saw one church converted to a condo, had a big banner across the side of it and said, move in here and you can sleep in church. You guys have no idea about sleeping in church, right? You've never fallen asleep on me. I know who you are. You can come confess afterwards. Just kidding. Love you guys. It's funny, but it's indicative of the condition of our city, isn't it? There are two options for faithful Christians, us in the room. One, we can say this, man, this city stinks. <laughs> this is awful. I'm not going to raise a family in this mess. I can't do life in this mess. Or you can say, man, God's got me here for a reason be about the restoration of a broken city, be about the restoration of Boston's 
faith community, the capital C church. It's not about us. The capital C church in Boston, that we can be committed to rebuilding, that we can be committed to the third great awakening emanating out of this city. That like Nehemiah, we could have contrite hearts. We could be broken for our city. And flowing out of that brokenness would be awakening. Awakening. We could say, man, I'm committed to planting my life here. And I want to see New England reached again through Boston. Through Boston. The scriptures that we're looking at this morning, they're calling us to pray. Calling us to pray. Now, my wife will verify that I pray a ton. My conviction for prayer is stronger than ever, ever at this season in my life. I'm praying like crazy. I just, I believe that it's not going to happen unless we pray. I'm praying nonstop, it feels like. But I do believe that we as a church can more collectively and more strategically pray. I think we need to. And listen, I'm very type A. Very type A. Some of you this morning saw it. It's, it's bad. But listen, us type A kind of people, we've we got to go do this, get it done. We talked about last week. They showed up to Philippi. What do they do? They didn't say, let's go get it done. They said, let's pray. And they go down to the river and they pray. And we've got to pray. I want your connection group to be praying for the building of faith community for Boston. I want your discipleship group to be praying like never before for the building of a faith community in Boston. I want the meals that you host at your house as you're getting together with other Christians to be praying for the renewal and the rebuilding of the faith community in Boston. We're going to be organizing some more deliberate, uh, deliberate prayer efforts. We'll be announcing those soon. But what you're going to see throughout the book of Nehemiah is the guy just prays all the time about everything. About everything. We cannot build faith community for Boston, our city of God, apart from prayer. Can't do it. Let's not try We'll just waste ourselves. We'll just burn ourselves out. Let's close with Nehemiah's prayer. Check this out. Verses 5 through 11. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me and my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Remember that, God. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. 
We're going to study this prayer a little more next week. But a few things that I want to point out to kind of guide our prayers this week. Verse 5, he opens with a declaration of God's faithfulness. God, you have loved us. You have kept your covenant. We need to pray with belief that God is good. God is still on his throne. God still has a plan. We need to pray that way. We need to worship him in our prayers. Not just, God, give me, give me, give me. God, I want this. I need this. God, help me, help me, help me. But God, you, you, you. Christ-centered prayer. God-centered prayer. Not me-centered prayer all the time. We should pray for me. We should pray for my wife. We should pray for my children. We should pray for my friends and family. But we also, more than anything, need to pray God-centered prayers. Philippians chapter 4, be anxious for nothing but in everything with prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. What does he say? Don't be anxious, pray about it, but also thank the Lord. Talk about how good God is because when you talk about how good God is, your attention is on what? The problem? No, it's on him. Pray with God at the center of your prayer, verse 5. Verses 6 and 7, he prays for his corrupted and destroyed city. Prays for them. And he humbly admits, I and my father's house have sinned as well. So Nehemiah, you read, he's a man of God. But he doesn't just start praying about these stinking people out here who can't live for God and are so selfish and so corrupt. He points the finger at himself and he admits his own fault. He prayed for how he could be about helping the condition of the city. Whether he directly sinned or just indirectly sinned by not doing anything for all these years. He prayed about himself. He confessed his own sin. See, so many Christians just want to complain about how churches are awful, how this church is messed up. Listen, this church isn't perfect. You're never going to find that perfect church. When you do, give me a call because I'm going to go over there. I'm going to apply for a job there. But listen, we don't sit around and complain all the time. What do we do? We find our piece of the equation. What can I do? How have I sinned? How have I messed up? That's what Nehemiah does. He says, even myself, my father's house, we've sinned. And you see what he does here, verse 5, and then verses 6 and 7? He compares God to himself. He compares God to the condition of a city. And he says, yeah, we're way off. We're, we're way off. Verses 8 through 11, he prays for God's grace. God, be gracious to us. God, please forgive us. God, please restore us. God, once again, be the center, focus of everything. Once again, make us the city of God. Help me as I pursue that yet again. It's an awesome prayer. There's a couple strong examples of prayer in Scripture, like when Jesus, our Father who art in heaven, this is another excellent example of prayer. If you have ever felt like, I don't know what to pray, what I do, there's seasons where I'm just hurt, I'm struggling, I don't know what to pray, I don't know how to pray, I just feel like I can't even say anything. I'll just read through some prayers of the scripture. You can read this prayer, and it could be our prayer for our city. So as we close, we're seeking the third great awakening. And as I've said before, God is moving, no doubt. He is using countless Christians all over this city to do a good work. I mean, I, I'm, I have some friends who are pastors at churches up in Cambridge, North Shore, South Shore. Amazing stuff. Amazing stuff God is doing. It is not about our name. At the end of this prayer, it is about his name. It's about his name. 
He's moving. Talked to a, a newer family to the church. Her father planted a church about 20, 30 years ago in the South End. Still going strong. It's not about us. We're not the people who just showed up and finally decided to save Boston. No. It's been on God's radar screen for a long time. And I just, I pray a lot of prayers. I just say, God, wow, thank you that I get to be in on this action. Because I'm so incompetent. You so don't need me. But the fact that I get to have a little, tiny, tiny little piece in this, and our people get to experience a tiny, tiny piece of what I believe is going to be an awakening in our city, in our country, man, amazing. Christians, we pray for the heart of Jesus. That's what we're praying for. For the heart of Jesus. We would be about the business of Jesus for the brokenness of our city. It's the restoration. We'd be broken for our own sin, our own slice of this issue here. And if you're not a Christian, the call here is to recognize your own sin and to see that Jesus loves you even though you sin and that Jesus is extending grace to you. He wants to forgive you for your sin. He's a good God. He died on the cross for you and for your sin. That if you would trust in his substitution for you, that he paid the price for you, then you can be made right. You can be restored. And I would encourage you in this moment that you can pray to him and you can say, yes, I receive your grace. I turn from sin and I turn to you. Doesn't mean you get perfect. You live a life as a follower of God. You're going to constantly be saying, I've messed up. But you can rest assured that the moment you say yes to Jesus, you are his. And he says, no one can snatch you out of my father's hand. No one can snatch you out of my hand. You're mine. You're mine. There's comfort in that. So I'm pleading with us. Turn back to the Lord. Be broken over your sin. Some of us become a Christian. We're going to pray in just a minute here. I don't want to spoil the rest of the story, but I'll tell you this in closing. After 141 years of failed effort in restoring the city of Jerusalem, the city of God, Nehemiah and his posse built the wall in 40 or 52 days. 52 days. 141 years. What's the difference? Prayer. Let's pray. Father, we love you. You are a good God. You keep your covenants. Your love for us is so strong. We don't deserve it. We are so in awe. We have sinned against you. We don't want to be the church that points fingers all the time. We want to be the church that steps up and says, let's change this. We can't do it alone. We need your spirit. We need your power. Help us, Lord. I pray for people in this room who need to receive that mercy and that grace that you're offering them right now. They would say yes to Jesus because your scriptures say everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I pray that they would call upon you and say yes to your gift right now. They didn't earn it. It's a gift, not a reward. So help them. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.